HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with me, your host, Zara Tangora, and me, your mom, Bobby Comforto. Oh, hi, Bobby. Hi, Sals. I'm a chef. Bobby? I am an ex-chef, and I am a bereavement psychotherapist. Amazing. I just yeah. thought, you know, if we have any new listeners, they I, might want to know okay. what our qualifications are. <laughs> We're just two people. We're just talking <laughs> about food and grief. Um, we are just two people talking about food and grief, but we do have some kind of expertise in it. And so the important part of our show is our guests. Yes, that is very true. That, that's the whole crux of the show. Um, we're so lucky to have these folks join us each mm. week. Every time we get off of a talk with a guest, I'm just like so grateful because I mentioned this last week in the intro when we were talking about Ant- about Anthony, but um, it's an it's an emotional heavy lift, but like not only for the hour. You know what I mean? It's not just like yes. people talk to us for the hour and they're, it's like the thought of preparing exactly. for it. It's the like decompression from it. And the risk they're taking. Yeah. It's, but it's really extremely generous because the, hopefully the goal is, and I, I know this from just hearing from listeners is that it helps other people be able to kind of cope and get through what feels like the hardest time in life. And talk about grief. Yeah. You know, to talk about it more. But what I'm always astounded by is the feeling of warmth afterwards. Oh, and yeah. how, um, our guests, including Lavanya today, mm-hmm. um, just felt that she had a good experience, that she yeah. felt nourished and, yeah. um, and she felt good about sharing. She said that she came on the show to kind of to unpack if this would be a way that she could unpack her grief. And she felt satisfied with that. Yeah, it was great. I mean, every time we get off of a recording, Bobby and I call each other on the phone and say, Oh my God, that show was so good. And <laughs> today we're actually happening to be together sitting side by side. Um, cause we're celebrating my stepdad and, and, uh, Bobby's husband, Rob, his 70th birthday this weekend. So let's give just a little shout out to Rob Conforto celebrating 70 Yay. years, nicest person, sweetest guy. And we're so happy to be celebrating him. Um, so today on the show, we are joined by Lavinia Nambiar, who is not only a friend and a wonderful person, but also I'm so blessed that she is my downstairs neighbor. Mm. 
And we really formed a bond, as we'll talk about on the show, over sharing food with each other. And we found it as a way to kind of become quick friends. And also, like, I think both come from a background of showing food as love and wanting. And because of that, we formed a really special connection. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel lucky I live in a building where there's a, it's a small building. There's only four apartments and everyone is so amazing. I also have such a wonderful close relationship with my ex- upstairs neighbor, Kari. And a big part of it is just through how we share with each other. And it's really cool. And I know it's not possible everywhere, but if it feels like it is, I guess I want to encourage people to try it out. And that's that's saying that with a grain of salt, knowing it isn't possible for everyone. Well, you know, I knew when I heard that you started to bring food around to your neighbors, I was just, I put a big smile on my face because it's part of your warmth. And when I realized that that you had knitted together a community by your being your generosity and your warmth well it's by everybody everybody it's a communal thing and and it is thank you for saying that and it's really nice and it's just the world is hard to be in you know what I mean that is a fact and no matter what happens with COVID or with really anything it's still going to be a hard place to be in and so I think personally and I know everyone has a different idea of what a solution for that could be my solution is to make to start with my immediate surroundings. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because frankly, I think it's very hard to make a bigger impact if you don't start with your immediate surroundings and the little things you can do, right? And then it grows from there. And then hopefully that gives us the, you know, uh, force we need to kind of meet some of the challenges of the world. And that being said, even if it just brings a little joy to the day, right? Even like life is hard, it's not gonna globally and in a major way get easier. So we have to find ways to make every day easier in the little ways we can. Sing it, sister. You know? I agree. And I think that sometimes you don't get to live next to the best people and the, and or but let's just say people who you connect with because I don't right. like to say best right. people or worst right. people. Sometimes right. you don't aren't lucky enough to live next to people who you connect with. But... Um, if you can find ways to connect, I recommend it. And like, I also have like a super close relationship with my next door neighbor who lives in the building next to me, who, you know, especially in this time where like people feel like you need to share political ideologies to get along. Like we don't, him and I, and yet I, I jokingly refer to him to new people as my best friend. He's like 75 years old, but he kind of is my neighbor, Al. I love him, you know? And so, but what I'm, the point of all this is not to brag about how much all my neighbors love me. The point of it is, is just to say again, that like life can be challenging. So if we can make nice things for ourselves that don't cost anything other than our openness, it can make a big difference. And, uh, if you're out there and you're listening and you found yourself in a slump or a rut or things not going the right way, you know, you can look online and say, how do I change my life? And it's like, well, go to the gym and, you know, go figure out how to start your own business and all these things that seem daunting. And truly, I think that like these things can start to feel better when you start small. Share food, share love. Yeah. I mean, just... Share yourself, yes. open up a little yeah. bit. It's hard. That's, that's hard. That's one of the things I think about when you're um, grieving or when you're in a bad place, that's hard. That's a big thing to do is to open your heart. I remember when my dad died, like 
I couldn't even look people in the mm-hmm. eye. I found myself realizing, cause I had also been going through a heartbreak at that time. And even when I go through smaller griefs, like heartbreak or losing something, I find it hard to look people in the mm-hmm. eye. And I notice that things start to change when I can do that again. When I, yes. when I make a conscious effort to like look up and smile and make eye contact. And so sometimes it just starts there with like a smile and it's hard, yes. but it's, it's worth it. And I hope that anyone out there who's having a hard time can, can find these like little, these little things. So anyway, uh, our talk with Lavinia was beautiful and just so appreciative to her. And so it's always wonderful to hear about, um, I don't know, just how different culturally different people process death, what the culture is surrounding death in different cultures. So I thought that was very interesting. Thank you to Lavinia for your time. We love you and thank you so much and take care of yourselves and each other. Thank you. Bye. We are joined today by friend, neighbor, all around wonderful human being, Lavinia Nambiar. And uh, she's joining us live from my building in Carroll Gardens. And I am in Bobby's house today in an unusual turn of events. But yet we are all here together. And uh, it's a beautiful October morning. And I'm so excited that you joined us today and that we get to get to chat and hear more about your story and your life. You're a wonderful neighbor and a wonderful friend. And now we are psyched to have you on Processing. So welcome. Thank you so much, Sarah. Nice to Welcome. meet you. So nice to see you. Yeah. And Bobby, you finally, um, I get a chance to meet you. I've heard your voice all this while. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's great. And uh, it's a nice, bright uh, October morning. Yeah. And looking forward to um, unpacking everything. Yeah, we're really psyched to have you. So uh, we met about a year ago when you and your partner, Kevin, moved in uh, downstairs in our uh, little lovely little street over in Carroll Gardens. And it's just been like a really fast friendship. I think we just like immediately had a great connection. And I mean, we're lucky that we have a friendly building and everyone is sweet and friends and nice. But I think we have a special connection and we, you know, share food with each other and you bring me up some of the delicious, amazing things that you make and I'll bring you down what I'm making. And I think like, I don't know, it makes the building feel special and kind of like what neighbors used to do for each other, you know, and I think it breaks down some of the stigma of like the cold New York vibe because I know New York to actually be a warm place, you know, and it feels nice to kind of keep up those neighborhood neighborly traditions with you. It's funny you say that because when I moved into uh, the US, like I was here by myself to pursue my master's in 2016, there was this lack of warmth. Like Mm. I felt like it was very individualistic and everyone's chasing their own dream and nobody's got time for anybody. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. I would would go to Times Square to cry out. Like, you know, there were times when I would just sit and cry by myself. Yeah. Oh, and Times Times Square is like a lone, it's weird because it's like the loneliest place to be probably in New York because it's busy, but it's also just full of speeding around tourists and, you know, but I think that's the thing about New York, right? Is that once you actually live here for a while and not to say that it's for everyone, but I think once you kind of live here for a while and get the lay of the land, you find the like the neighborhoods that are warm and friendly and you can find your way into like, you know, and I know that isn't necessarily the experience for everyone, but 
as someone who spent pretty much my whole life in New York, I feel that that can be true if you just, you know, it, it's just harder in a big place. You have to look for those pockets of like familiar, familiarity, but you are, it is really true also in like, I mean, the rugged individualism in America in general, you know what I mean? Is mm-hmm. uh, I think unfortunately just becoming more and more prominent as a, as a thing, as time kind of goes on. And um, when did you first come to the United States? So I first came to the United States in 2007, I believe. Not seven, sorry, 2011. Mm-hmm. To pursue my master's in biotechnology in Buffalo, actually, believe it or not. Wow, Buffalo. <laughs> and yeah, I, I slipped into depression. I was like really upset and sad there. And I realized I don't want to pursue this career. Mm. I want to do something like public health policy. So I just left. I abandoned everything and I went back home and started from scratch, like in public health. Wow. And and home for you, you grew up in, and were born and raised in New Delhi, India, correct? Correct. Yeah. My parents are from the southern state in India called Kerala, mm-hmm. but I was raised in New Delhi all my life. And I worked there yeah. extensively in public health before uh, coming uh, back to the United States in 2016 to pursue my master's in public health policy from wow. Columbia University. That's amazing. Columbia, wonder, I mean, just that whole area up there by Columbia. Did you live up there when you came to study there? I lived in Washington Heights. Okay, which is yeah. Amazing. I lived there too, actually, for a long time when I was in college. Oh, I went to FIT oh, and I, my first apartment out of college was up there by Columbia University. And it's a really interesting, oh. beautiful whole neighborhood there when you first came what was the, what was it like for you when you first came here so when I came into Buffalo I had like it was shocking for me you know mm-hmm. what you see in the movies uh, yeah. <laughs> in Hollywood and I was like wait this is America and and as soon as I got here I got like bed bug infestation in my apartment I was like oh, oh my no. god I've never known what bed bugs were back in India which is supposedly third world and yeah. I come here and it's horrible, oh, absolutely horrendous. That's a really bad thing to happen. That happened to me when I was in college. And it just feels, it's like, it feels never ending. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, like, when will this be over? Like, how do I even wrap my head around this, like, annoying, you know? And then it's like your sleep too, you know? Like, you just want to, the world can be so difficult to navigate. And like, when you go to sleep, you just want to feel peaceful and comfortable. It's a, that's a hard thing to deal with, like coming, you know. Right out of the gate. That wasn't very welcoming, right? It wasn't very welcoming to have bed bugs it creatures. Wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. So <clears throat> when I was moving here, I was like, you're really eager to, you know, start my own life and get away from my family and, you know, break all those bonds. I was very rebellious. When I came here, I was like slowly understanding the value of all that mm. love, that warmth, that affection. I missed all of that. And I was like, wait, I want to visit my family again like in six months I went back and mm. just went back went back as in to visit my parents and I would do that every six months because I could not bear staying away from my family yeah of mm-hmm. course who's at home who is your family at home so I'm my uh parents only child so. wow me too so we have so uh, much in common <laughs> in that oh, way you do yeah, yeah. So it was really hard for me. And so it's my mom and my dad. And my dad was, for a big part of, big chunk of my childhood, my dad was working in the Middle East. So 
it was more like just my mom handling everything and she had a job and so I spent a lot of time you know craving for that feeling like that affection like you know when will my mom come back and yeah just staying by myself so uh yeah so um we did that and we have a very close-knit family uh, because you know family means it's a big deal in India like you may I mean not the immediate family but you know your cousins and your sisters so for me my cousins are my siblings like yeah literally and so the person I'm hopefully I'm going to talk about is my aunt who's my mother's younger sister and who passed away in May this May recently yeah. due to COVID and uh, we were like family I would call her mama yeah. which is like she was like my mother so you know I spent a lot of time at their place, their apartment, and their son is literally like my sibling. So, mm-hmm. like, I call him my brother, not yeah. my cousin. Totally. And so, I mean, so that's kind of how, you know, we we connected in terms of thinking about having you join us on the show is that, you know, um, your aunt, who just mentioned, what, what was her name? Her name is uh, Shoba, Shobana. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Um, you had come upstairs and we chatted and I, you know, could just tell that something was wrong and I knew it was your birthday the previous day, I think, when we had talked. Um, and you looked so sad and I kind of just knew something was wrong. We kind of connected over you sharing that you had had this grief experience with the loss of your aunt who you were so close with. Um, as you mentioned, she died from COVID-related complications, right? And, you know, I was just struck by... Um, by the fact, but what it feels like to have someone be sick when you can't be there. It's Mm -hmm. such a challenging, really terrible thing to happen. Um, And it adds a whole nother layer of complication to the grief because it's like the loss. And then I think within every loss, whether we, what, you know, to what level this exists is different for everyone. Um, But there's an amount of guilt and associated with it and regret. And it's not like that, it's not in based in reality most of the time because there's generally nothing you can do about it. But it's the powerlessness. Right. But I think like being away from someone, I know that I experienced that in a smaller scale because it was much closer. But when my father was sick, he lived in North Carolina and there were times when he'd become so ill and was on the brink of death. Like I just couldn't be there or leave and come back or whatever. And that feeling, yeah, of powerlessness and of, of just not being able to be present. You know, being able to be present is so hard, but it also is a healing thing. It's a way to like move through a painful grief experience. And so I just, I really felt for you in that moment. Can you just, I guess, kind of talk to us about, you know, what were you feeling in that time? Because it was a while when you're, from when your aunt became sick to when she passed away, right? Right. So she tested positive for COVID in April. So basically, she was, she had planned her daughter's wedding. She also has a daughter. Mm. Uh, So she had planned all her wedding because she just knew deep down that, you know, it'll come to an end. Like, you know, she just knew it. I don't know. She went to to an astrologer and he said the same thing, which is so strange. And so she had prepared for it, like, you know, saved money in the Mm. bank account separate for her daughter for the wedding and everything. Like, she was preparing for it. And then the wedding was supposed to happen 
on April 5th, I believe. And the groom got uh, tested positive for COVID. And so obviously they had to cancel everything. And uh, she was really bummed out. She was really sick and she never told any of us. Like we knew she had uh, uh, liver cirrhosis, but she never told us how bad it is. Mm. And she would collapse in the bathroom and stuff. This her kids reveal revealed this later on. So, so then, on April around April thirteenth or fifteenth, she tested positive for COVID, mm. and she works. She used to work at the hospital. So, even despite the fact that she worked at the hospital, she struggled to uh, get even an oxygen tank because her oxygen saturation was going down, falling like to sixty something. And 50, so she really badly needed an oxygen tank and she, we could not procure one. And then finally they got like an ICU bed for her. And initially she was talking and stuff, but then from there it was downhill. What like, a frantic feeling to um, think, to hear the news of her situation and to know that what could you do when you say we tried to get things for her? Did you try from here to get supplies for her and things? So I tried contacting uh, people in India because at that point, everyone was posting on Instagram. This person has these many oxygen tanks. Oh my God, absolute despair and misery. Can you imagine like you are not able to help your parent even get to a hospital or Mm. get admitted to a hospital. And it's just everyone was feeling helpless. Like my mom has so many connections and she's been able to get all these things done, like with especially with the government. But this time, everyone failed. And then finally, uh, they got a hospital bed, an ICU. And then it's just downhill, like her organs started failing. And because she had uh, cirrhosis, then that worsened the situation. Of course. She was also diabetic, so. Yeah. And I remember clearly, like, asking her to get vaccinated, like, 15 days before the wedding. I was like, was it possible oh. in that time for her to do it? So she worked at the hospital, so mm. it was possible for her. But she was like, oh, I've heard so many things about the side effects. And we need to get our daughter married. So, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I'll do it after the wedding. That's really hard. You know, I mean, it's just, there's so many terrible complications as a result of what's happened with this pandemic. And you know, messaging globally and also reason reasonable concern about vaccines because they haven't, you know, I mean, I I believe in the vaccine and I believe in obviously it as a as a means to an end of this whole situation. But, you know, it's reasonable for people to be curious about things that are going into their body and to be scared. And if there's not clear messaging and there's not, you know, and like stuff like that, it is hard for people. It is it's reasonable for people to be skeptical and scared. You know what I mean? Especially at first. And at this point now we have seen that it's like, you know, working, but you know, I also just am struck by like what you're saying in kind of relation to vaccination and stuff like that, you know, like where people and, and kind of tying to what you're talking about, about the rugged individualism is that like, especially in this country, we're predisposed to being, concerned with self first you know what I mean always really and that's almost that's the messaging for Americans um and the problem is is that there's all these folks who live in this country and all over the world who are affected by the decisions that we make that we think 
like when we think of only ourselves. And, you know, like I've thought I'm, I don't know many people who are just wholeheartedly psyched to get vaccinated. It's strange. It's scary. It's a thing going in your body. You don't know about It's If we didn't have to do it, wouldn't that be better? You know what I mean? Like, but we do it because there's, there's a bigger picture, you know? And I think it's very easy to pretend like there's not, and that goes for a lot of things, but it's important. And I'm so glad you're on sharing with us. Like it's a bigger picture and it affects people in ways you would be completely unable to understand. Do you know what I mean? Like, in in terms of just what you're saying, being someone whose beloved family member is thousands of miles away and like how heartbreaking that is for you to not be able to have, um, any, any real agency over being able to say goodbye or make an impact. And the fact that like the decisions we make here, thousands of miles away, you know what I mean? And how we think of people, you know, in a global sense can help people like yourself not have to go through that type of painful situation. You know what I mean? And I hope that anybody listening can kind of understand that if they're still curious or on the fence about whether to become vaccinated or take that take that on for themselves, it's worth it because we are all human beings and we owe to ourselves and each other to, to care about each other. Right. It's important. And I also, like, all I can do sitting here is, you know, ask them to get vaccinated. And yeah. that's, I tried really hard. And I really forced my parents to do that. Thankfully, they got it before it became unavailable there, right? Yeah. So, so... And then she did not. And in May, I, I was like, you know, horrible month. Like every day was like one bad, one, another bad news, like about her, you know, liver is going to fail her. Everything was failing. It was like she was, she slipped into coma as well. They wouldn't call it, my family wouldn't call it coma because, you know, the stigma attached to it, obviously, for a good reason. So, they were like, yeah, she'll respond. She's not responding right now, but the doctor said it's coma. She's in coma right now. And Are you trying to say that they didn't want to scare you? Is that what you mean, that they, they didn't want to use words that would frighten you? Yeah. They, they wanted you to have They hope? tried not to. Yeah. Or, or say it out loud. Like, yes. they, did, they were kind of in, I mean, they didn't want to admit it's coma. And, right. Of course. And that's a, that's a thing that happens a lot, too, because, like, this is all so much for people to grasp, whether it's losing someone to COVID or anything else. Like it's so human to like, not that it's necessarily the healthiest thing to do always, but it's extremely human to not be able to, you know, I mean, isn't that one of the stages? I mean, I know we don't totally subscribe to the stages of grief anymore, but it is like denial is, uh, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, actually the stages that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked about, which um, have to do with, you know, denial and anger and bargaining and grief and acceptance really fit more to the dying process than they do to the grieving process. Right, because the grieving process has so much nuance in it. So what you're describing is that your family, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you noticed all those things, right? You know, in the beginning, that this can't be true. How could this be true? And, you know, the family not wanting to really accept that she was dying and probably the signs were there, you know, that that's what was happening, but we don't want to believe that. Yeah. Uh, you, and deep down inside, I knew that, you know, yeah. if this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you were saying something? Oh, no, no, it's fine. I just, I, I'm thinking of something you shared with us prior to the show about how you had been processing some of this um, 
this anxiety around uh, your aunt's illness with chanting and praying. And I just was hoping that you could kind of talk to us a bit more about that because I think ritual also in whatever form it comes is a very interesting way of, I almost think of it and tell me what you think. I know the Mm -hmm. intention is to do these things, whatever the ritual might be to help the other person. And I'm in no way saying that it doesn't, but I also think of it as really when we distill it a way to help ourselves get through it. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are regarding that. So I was chanting throughout, you know, her illness. Like when she got admitted to the ICU, I started chanting. And I normally chant. I'm like, not religious, I would say, but spiritual. Mm. And um, my parents are Hindu. So so in Hinduism, we believe in uh, rebirth, right? And moksha, which is liberation from death or mortality. So when we knew that her, you know, situation is worsening, I started chanting, oh, my mom, mom suggested I should chant Mrityam Jaya Mantra. It's called Mrityam Jaya Mantra, which is basically chanting for her you know, liberation. Like, mm. it literally translates to, uh, like the fruit falls off from the bondage of the stem, may we be liberated from death and from mortality. Mm, I love that. I remember when you told me that when we were talking right after your aunt passed away, and I thought it was one of the most kind of touching things and also one of the most honest things I've heard about death and dying, um, about the ripe fruit, the ripest fruit falling from the tree and really, really had an impact to think about it often. Yeah, because we might want them to stay and, you know, live, but suffer for our selfish interest, maybe, you know, because we want that person around, but we could see that she was suffering and, uh, there was no way that she would be 100% even if she survived, you know. So uh, after a while, we were like, you know, just we need a result. Like, you know, she should be fine as in she should get liberation from all this trouble, like, soon. And on my birthday, I had this horrible feeling. Like, I woke up and I was like, it's a bad day. It's going to be a bad day. I just knew it. And I could not do anything like we went to the botanical garden just because I like plants and I could not enjoy at all because I had this gray cloud over my head and I didn't know why but I had a feeling and an inkling that something bad's gonna happen and I would check my phone again and again and then we go in for my birthday dinner and uh, uh, my partner gets this text from my mom that you know you should tell her that she passed away at 3.15 a.m. or something. And he kept it from me because he didn't want to, you know, break out the news uh, while we were having dinner with his family. It would be weird for me. So he kept it to himself and he was acting very strange. And mm. then we were driving back and my cousin, she texted me like, she's no more. And I was like, what? I was in absolute disbelief. Like, I could not believe it and then I remember like just crying for like 13 minutes in the car Uh, we stopped over at a Dunkin Donuts (laughs) just cried there for like half an hour and then you know I started piecing everything together I was like okay so you know she was suffering so this is I guess my and then I made sure I call up my cousins because 
I had another aunt who passed away in 2017 and I couldn't be there for my, I could not master the courage to be there for my family because I was still figuring out my emotions. But I feel like I, I you know, I could not live up to that big sister image of mine. So right. I hated mm-hmm. that. Were so. these the most major losses in your life? Had you had any losses prior to this? Your two aunts? Uh my grandfather, but that was old age. So, yeah. no, none. That's what. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's very so, profound, the fact that you were not near them. It's it's so, I think, our, our Zara and I are sitting here listening, and I am sure the listeners are hearing the same thing, just that it must be so hard not to have been there because, you know, when you're there, not that you can do anything to change it, but you feel like you're a part of it. And it must have been such... Um, a strange thing to be in the city and be out to dinner for your birthday and and it's so different than what was going on back home and yeah and it made no sense like when I found out and I we come in to enter Carroll Garden like this whole area Gowanus and everything and I'm like this makes no sense like you know it all comes down to life and death so why are all these people dining out why are yeah. everyone's enjoying like it makes no sense I know and it's strange. Yeah, it's a strange I, juxtaposition to actually be existing in that world even still of, of so many people suffering and dying and then just other people living life like everything's normal, which I also don't necessarily think is a bad thing. In some ways, it's like, well, if this is, everything is so bleak, if death is so close to all of us, closer than ever, then shouldn't we eat and drink and have fun? But then it's like, again, then that spins itself again on its head. It's like, well, at whose expense and who are these servers who have to be, you know, it's such a complicated issue. But um, yeah, I just think that something that I find interesting about everything you're saying is like, you know, you you came to New York, to Buffalo for the first time and experienced the feeling of the individualism and being away from, you know, your home where family and community was more important. And one thing I do think we don't have a great handle on here, generally speaking. And of course, there are sections of great community throughout the the country, but largely community, we are not community focused. And so to come here and feel the individualism uh, and be struck by it and in a painful way, and then to, I'm imagining and tell me if I'm correct in, you know, the moment of finding out your aunt and pass and not being able to be there and then being the individual. You know what I mean? Not as like a selfish individual, but just being individual, you and and your partner together, kind of, but not community, you know, focus. And and I am imagining not the same as it would feel had you been home in India with your family. And I'm also curious to know, uh, well, first of all, whether or not that makes sense to you. But secondly, um, what is the community, some of the community traditions surrounding death uh, in India, where you're from? So... Death, you of course mourn and uh, you grieve, right? And uh, yeah, you talk about that person. I feel like you know I've had I didn't have that much as much as many losses, right? Personally, but and I've never been to a funeral to be honest. Wow! But I know. Uh, so my mom kept me very protected from that. Like if she would go. She would go in, but she'll be like, you stay back home. Like, mm. you don't need to go. And then it's it's a very, I don't know, it's about, because you're transitioning from one life to another, that's how we look at it. 
in Hinduism. Like, so it's basically the soul leaving the body and going into, you know, transitioning. So we consider it a very pure process. Everyone's wearing white, firstly. Mm, I love that. White is the color for that. And yeah, so we have, we uh, basically chant for them, for the one who passed away and just pray for them. But, and food, food on the 13th day, I believe, we use, so you're supposed to feast people. Like they are supposed to be a big feast feeding um, everyone, open to everyone. Nice. Especially you, those who need food. What so, do you mean everyone? You mean everybody, not just family, people in the whole community? Whole community. Mm. Anyone can come and have the lunch because, yeah, that's open to... Because you're supposed to do good. That's part of the intentional action, right? Because, because that translates to your rebirth to, you know, how, I know it sounds a little selfish because you are doing all these intentional <laughs> action too. <laughs> no, it sounds, it sounds really beautiful. And I'm curious, obviously, being that, you know, we are two, Bobby's a former chef and I'm a chef and a lover of food. What are kind of, what are some traditional things like in Indian culture, uh, when there's funeral ceremony or it just maybe even not necessarily for the funeral, is there anything around the home that is specific or even just in your own family's traditions? So, so my parents are from South India. My family is from South India. It's a state, small state called Kerala, which is down South by the sea. Mm. Um, uh, and so we eat lots of fish normally. Mm. We can even eat fish for breakfast. <laughs> if need Love be. We, so that's how it works. And uh, lots of coconut and fish and uh, not too spicy food. Unlike uh, what's it, you know, the image of Indian food here is more like butter, chicken and all that right. heavy stuff. But we are, uh, diet is more like fish, coconut based fish, curry. So it's, it's really good. So on during funeral, it's more like a seven-course meal with, you know, what puri is? Puri. Puri uh, is like a fried sure. bread. Oh, fried yes. bread, bread. Right, right. So if it's in North India, it's like puri and uh, like maybe... it's It has to be vegetarian, though, if it's funeral. Oh, oh interesting. Funeral ceremony. Yeah. Because, again, uh, Hindus are not supposed to consume meat. Right. Of course. And, yeah, so, and does that include fish as well? Is that under the bracket of meat? Okay. Mostly, yeah. Yeah. No fish. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, it's puri and uh, different a variety of curries, different curries. It uh, could be dry, could be uh, watery, mm. and uh, of course desserts. Mm. Like a rice pudding or something. So it's like a seven courses big. And you're supposed to celebrate. It's it's supposed to taste good. Or maybe something that that person liked. Yeah, that's So that's beautiful. what we did. That's, that's what, what you guys did. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So what did what did you have? I mean, I didn't do it, but <laughs> No, I understand. No, I mean, but I didn't know if like you know what your parents did. Like what was your what was your aunt's favorite thing? So she likes green beans. We made, uh, my parents, my family made that. And uh, it's called, something called Avil, A-V-I-A-L. It's like a mishmash of all the vegetables uh, with a coconut base. 
and you add some coconut milk. So it's similar to Thai curry, but not exactly Thai curry, but yeah, so that and rice. So all her favorite stuff. Yeah, that's really, I mean, that's beautiful. And I love, I don't know, I think that the more I learn about how different cultures around the world um, handle end of life and death and rebirth and, you know, it is often more celebratory, I think, than what we do here in America. And I tend to think that's because we don't really talk a lot about death here in a way that is, you know, it's kind of something to be swept under the rug and something that's just very scary. Um, Is death something that is kind of openly talked about? And I guess I'm just going on that you said that, you know, the funeral tends to be more of a celebration, which I think is beautiful. I mean, it's it's also difficult because it's like sometimes very tragic, you know, and, and sometimes when someone dies of old age, not that it's not very sad, but it feels more like it makes sense, right? And when someone doesn't die of old age, it, it often can be very tragic. So I'm just amazed by how people can still muster the... Um, that beautiful spirit to, to celebrate, you know, I I think it's a beautiful thing. And I'm wondering if it has anything to do with like in, in your culture and in your family, um, was there more of a conversation around death as less of a scary thing? I mean, how did you guys speak about it? Yeah, we, we talk about death, uh, openly because, uh, my mom's very clear about it. Like, you know, when I get upset that, you know, at some point you'll die. And then my mom is like, you know, we all die. That's mm. fine. And you'll have to accept this. She always said that. Even when I was a kid, she would say that. You have to make peace with the fact that I will die one day. Mm. And that's natural. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, of course, I would want them to. Yeah. But like sudden death is not something nobody wants it. Right. But with old age, yes, like we all talk about it and we would rather die than suffer in pain and because of, you know, sickness and illnesses, all kinds of illnesses that people have. That So like, for instance, my I had my grandmother who was, who had dementia for a very long time. Mm. I did not mention her because I'm not very close to her. Yeah. I wasn't very close to her. But yeah, she was just, she would lay there in the bed she couldn't talk so that is I I would say that's misery and suffering yeah that's very hard want that on anybody so yeah death was up for discussion and even my aunt she had prepared her kids for death like she would say like you it feels like she brought it upon herself in some way my mom keeps saying that she always spoke about death all the time like Mm. she would be like you know if I die you should not wear this. She would tell her kids that. Like, I love that. During my ceremony, you're not wearing this, okay? Like literally preparing everybody for <laughs> for her funeral, like, yeah. which is strange and so morbid. Yeah. I mean, well, think she worked about in healthcare it. too, right? So I guess she was used to it. You know, I know I worked in hospice for many years, for 12 years, and we would sometimes be astounded that in some of our group meetings we would be laughing it was because it was just a subject that we were just used to and we would almost have to make humor out of it sometimes but it was a familiar subject that we talked about all the time so I imagine for your aunt that she was what did she do in the hospital she was a health administrator so she managed the labs and everything she worked at a 
medical school slash hospital. So, mm -hmm. so labs and students and everything. So health admin, she saw it all, but, and her health was, she was in a very bad state already before COVID. So she just knew that, you know, it'll happen earlier for her, mm. if nothing else. And so she was prepared and she, even built like she had multiple houses that her kids have that are fight over property and everything, which is so strange. Like you know, yeah, it is. It's, it's creepy almost. Like preparing for it. It is, but it's also like, I don't know. It's real. It's re yeah, it's real, and it's just like it, it. It's one of those things that we always think like with anything terrible or even good like winning the lottery which is you know maybe more complicated than good but you know what I mean like any anything that's a surprise that you think only happens to other people which you know for stuff for stuff like that that's extreme you know good or bad it usually does just happen to other people but death does happen to everybody it really does yet it feels like something that doesn't it feels like something that only happens to other people and I think that like being able to face it as fearlessly as possible is a hugely high practice, you know, like any other high practice that like we can do spiritually. Um, I think that preparing for death is about one of the highest. And I know that in a lot of other cultures around the world and a lot of other faiths, um, and even people who are not faith-based people who are atheists, um, do are able to prepare for death. And it seems strange, you know what I mean? And it seems morbid, but like, and maybe it is, you know, but maybe it's kind of like liberating too, because there is such like- a, Fear of death. And, and in the fear of death, there is um, a lot of constriction, you know? It really, I think, makes us do all kinds of things and we don't even realize how the choices we make based on the fear of dying. You know what I mean? Like, because it's like bargaining. We'll almost do anything to make it not real or something. But it is real. And I don't know. You sound Buddhist. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, they'll just, like, the Buddhists say death is inevitable. Yeah. And, that's, and they talk about it yeah. throughout their um, practices. Yeah. But I think when we go through a death experience, and unfortunately you had to do it long distance, but when we go through the death of somebody we love, we learn a lot. And we I think most people can become less afraid when they go through it instead of more afraid, particularly if there's support. That's right. why I love being in hospice so much because it meant supporting families who started off with fear. And in the end, they ended up having more faith or less fear, more hope. And so that process of trusting the process of what happens in the dying process, which is inevitable, we can't change it. And that's what we realize. It's the things we can't control, you know? Yeah. But I think you missed, unfortunately, you heard it on the phone and you heard it from your family, but you, because you didn't get to see it. And of course, with COVID deaths, that was unfortunately a constriction that was very difficult for people because they couldn't be there. Right. Which is another reason to just enforce, and I, believe me, I'm not trying to I don't know, to use this platform to force people to get vaccinated, but just as something to think about, that is what we are taking from people if we do not participate in being part of the solution is keeping people from being able to, I mean, there was space that separated you, but in, you know, in general, it is a very horrible thing to not be able to be with your loved one when they pass away. And that is something that we are, you know, taking from people by not being part of the solution. Because you, you, you know, I think you mentioned in one of the, um, in your writing to us, 
that it was hard to process this. And I think when we can be there, there's something about it that helps us process it in, in, a, in a better way. Yeah. What has the grief been like for you? So this happened in May. And what's it been like for you since? So in May, I was in a very bad state because, you know, I was working and I, ha I had started going into work and I had this tremendous guilt because mm. I feel like I couldn't catch up with her enough or talk to her. And when she was in the hospital, I, because, you know, I am getting getting information about her at like third degree or fourth degree. Like, uh, you know, my cousin would call my mom, my mom would call another aunt. And then, so through several different channels. And so I could not directly call my cousin and speak to her. And that's my biggest regret because I could not speak with her. And uh, last year, another aunt of mine got diagnosed with uh, metastatic breast cancer. Mm. So from that day on, I would call her every day. I still call her because I felt like that's more urgent. Mm -hmm. So, but my, this aunt of mine, she was like, oh, does she not know I have liver cirrhosis? Like, you know, the, she was basically saying like, does she, do I not know how serious her situation is? Right. I did not. And so I, I regret the fact that I never called. I so this constant guilt like you know I wasn't able to catch up with her or talk to her and she was a jokester like she would love joking mm. all the time like uh, at other times when she was at the hospital she would joke with the nurses and make everybody laugh she was that, that person so so I was like the last time I spoke was before right before my cousin's wedding and she was like aren't you coming and I was like I, I can't come because my of, of COVID and yeah. the whole my paperwork that's a different discussion but yeah, yeah so <laughs> so I could not and so there was this guilt and then I was like uh you know trying I just compartmentalized my feelings and I was like even at work I cried once with my colleague when I told her about this and I was like you better not tell anybody else at work because I don't want to cry and make a big deal about it mm -hmm at work even though there's everybody else to sympathize they're really nice people I work with but I was like no I do not want to show my emotions out yeah but I also started having sleepless nights after that like my body started itching and I was like could not sleep the whole night it was I didn't know it was my anxiety manifesting in that way maybe yeah of course I feel like guilt when somebody passes away is so like we kind of touched on this in the beginning it's very normal. I feel like almost everybody, almost, I know I certainly don't want to speak for all the grievers in the world, but I'd say I'd venture to say that most people who are grieving have some level of feeling of guilt. I think that like loss is so difficult to process and understand. It's so like, we want solutions. We're human beings. We want solutions. We want something. If your finger is cut, you want a Band-Aid. If you're thirsty, you want to drink water. And when you're grieving, there is no actual immediate solution you just have to really go through it and maybe go through it forever in some way or another and so I think part of like guilt is like is is a search for solution so if I can turn this on me in some way I can make some sense of it and we're constantly grasping for a way to make sense of it and if we put make the problem us well then if the problem's me then I can shoulder this I can I can do the work through it I can blame myself it was you know what I mean it's hard to sit and, and accept that 
life is like this. You know what I mean? It really is. It's hard to look at yourself in the mirror and say, life is just like this. It's fucked up sometimes. It's deeply unfair sometimes. And I actually just have to sit with this pain until it starts to integrate into my life more. You know what I mean? And that's such a hard thing. And I don't know, I mean, this is a hypothesis if that's why guilt exists. I think there's probably, it's maybe a bit more like nuanced than that. I but address that a little bit. You know, I think that, you know, first of all, one of the tasks of grief is that we review our relationship, we review um, our interactions. And sometimes there are certain regrets or resentments that come up and it's part of what we process during the grieving process. But I think, Zara, you were very right that the powerlessness, I use that word over and over again, because this is something we can't control. In life, we can always control things. We can fix them and we can do something about it. And this is something we can't change and we can't control. So often you're right, that powerlessness gets turned in at ourselves. And some people, there's an anger in grief too. There's a no, you know, there's a no, I don't want this to be true. So sometimes that anger turns inward and it becomes guilt too. Mm. So, and, and there are certain regrets, but we always have to remember that we do the best we can. You know, that's such an important thing to remind yourself over and over, you know, from far away, you did the best you could and you didn't know this was going to happen. And, you know, you can tell that you care so much about your aunt and your family and your feelings are so deep. Um, so you have to just, you know, really have compassion for yourself and know this is such a hard thing that you've gone through. And, and I agree with Zara, it's a, it's a process, so it takes time. But if ever, when I'm there next, we can have a walk. And a talk more about this. Oh, absolutely. This been... I would love yeah, to. Yeah, it would be great. So when this happened, I was like, I just knew that I needed a big hug and I talked to somebody. Like my partner supported me as much as he could, but still. So I ha I was supposed to pick up something from Zara. She had saved a cake, slice of cake for me. Mm -hmm. And so I went upstairs and I just knew. I was like, you know, I told Kevin, it's going to be a while. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then I just started crying when I saw her face. And I was like, yeah, I have to tell her. And she gave me a big hug. And then we spoke about this. And yeah, that, that was very helpful at that point. Yeah. It really felt, I felt very honored that you felt comfortable confiding in me. And, you know, part of our bonding and our relationship as friends has been that we share food with each other. I want to hear yeah. what some of the things Yeah, that I share. thought we should talk about that mm -hmm. because it's been really like, um, it's a big part of like our friendship. And it's also just been a part of like how I think our building has come together a bit, you know. Um, but it's, I think our particular bond over sharing food together is really sweet. And it make like I'll cook something and I'm like, I'm going to make a little bit extra for her and bring it down. And yeah, like, I mean, you and Kevin came to the Zaza pop-up. I think that was kind of the beginning of like us enjoying each other's cooking. Yeah, it was great because we moved in in January this year and uh, uh, Zara came up to say hi and she mentioned about her pop-up and then... Uh, Within a few weeks, we had placed an order and we came to pick up at Shelsky's. And yeah, then there was no looking back. I was like, okay, I love her food. This is amazing and so warm. <laughs> and my mom always says you can taste the love that person puts into the food mm. through their food. Like you can just taste it. And I tasted that, that warmth. And I was like, yeah, I need to, you know, 
build work on this relationship like <laughs> I was speak, so explore this you bring me up can you tell us a little bit about like some of the things that you brought up for me you always bring up the most delicious Indian food <laughs> I mean truly like beyond I feel so blessed every time I get a text from you saying would you like a little bit of this or that I'm like oh my god of course yes I would never say no to your food it's so good so <laughs> what are some of like your kind of like do you remember any of specifics of stuff you brought to me so it's mostly vegetarian and uh, it's so every time I would cook something nice, I would be like, hmm, this tastes good. Maybe I can share it with Zara. <laughs> so so <laughs> it was like uh, eggplant once, mm-hmm. eggplant and potatoes Delicious. with uh, tomato base. It's called aloo bengin and that with fried bread, right? Which is puri. That was so delicious. I mean, and with a side of raita. I ate that so fast. Like just stand. usually I have to confess when you bring me food, I don't even sit down to like, you know, make a plate of it. I just like eat it out of the container standing up. And I'm like, I'll just try a bite of this. And then I am like, wow, I just ate all this in 30 seconds. It's so good. Yeah, it's normally not a very big portion. It's like a small portion, like just, you know, a yeah. serving. And um, yeah, with some raita on this side. And I would love to have you over. And it's just that, you know, with COVID and everything. I know, it's tough. never had an opportunity. But we're going to make we'll it happen. That we're going to have a dinner party very soon. And I'm truly, like, just so excited for it. I can't wait. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love it. It's one of the greatest. It makes me feel... Like, just to connect to what we were talking about earlier in the show, to, like, I don't know, the the feeling of feeling alone in such a big city of people and in such a big world, honestly, you know? And I think it's so tethering to find um, people who, like, were strangers weeks ago, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden they're not. And that can just happen, right? Like, anything else can kind of just happen. And... You just have to open your heart to it. You know what I mean? It's like any other kind of relationship or opportunity. Although this is one that's like kind of can be easier to make and finding ways we can connect with people. Um, well, it doesn't always have to be over food, but food is a great connector. Yes. You know, and if you're feeling lonely and you live in a building where you feel like you don't know anyone, maybe you need a friend. I don't know. Maybe it sounds a little hokey or corny or too easy, but like maybe it's not. Maybe it's possible to... Yeah. Be like, hey, I, like, made this pan of brownies. Like, do you want one? You know, and and just seeing, like, where that kind of warmth. Because also, like, you never know who could really fucking use a brownie that you made. (laughs) Sometimes it's, like, the gesture is bigger than you could understand. Well, it reminds us of a quote that we often use on the show. And it was from Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor and a psychiatrist. And he, he would say that survival is a community event. So it's true, you know, we, and if we don't have our community of our families, then we have to create new community. So that's what you did in Cobble Hill. And that's such a beautiful thing. I'm yeah. sorry, in um, Carroll Gardens. Yeah, it's been great. So we ask everyone on uh, every show the same thing, which is that if you could have given yourself a piece of advice at the beginning of this kind of grief experience that you, wherever you see yourself needing it, you know, at whatever point, um, what would that be knowing what you kind of know now and having gone through, you know, a lot of the processes of it? I would say don't be hard, too hard on yourself because mm. I beat myself up. I used to at least every day, like, you know, I wasn't there for her and, you know, but 
I try it up. So I would not do that. Yay. I would strictly <laughs> steer clear of that and, yeah, be there for my family. And I did my best. Yes. I am there for my family day in, day out, literally. I call them up in the morning, call them up in the evening, like no mm-hmm. matter how busy I am. That's right. So I'm trying my best. And so, yeah. Yeah, that is true. Do not be hard on yourself. That's great advice because here's the thing. It doesn't make anything better. Right. It doesn't take anything away. It doesn't make the person come back. It doesn't like prove anything. It just makes your life that you still have worse. And it's just like, it doesn't, you know, it's reasonable to have feelings of of guilt and stuff, but you have to at some point look at yourself and be like, who is this serving? I always ask myself that when I'm being hard on myself about stuff, I'm like, who is this for? You know, is this performative? Is this to like, you know, what is this actually? um, And it's it's healing to forgive yourself. Yeah. It's healing. Yeah. Yeah, So I want you to just read a little poem. Is that okay? Oh, of course. This is from a a very famous, I don't know how many people know John Donahue, but he was... um, Related to Phil Donahue? No. I'm just kidding. And he actually died. I was at a conference once and he was supposed to speak and he died right before the conference. And so I, Mm. I learned more about him. But he said, let us not look for you only in memory where we would grow lonely without you. You would want us to find you in presence. Besides us, when beauty brightens, when kindness glows and music echoes eternal tones, when orchards brighten the earth, darkest winter has turned into spring. May this dark grief flower with hope in every heart that loves you. Beautiful. That's beautiful, Bobby. Thanks for sharing that. I, I, I look it up and save it. Okay, we'll Just send it to you. Myself. We'll send you the poem. Yeah, yeah that would be lovely. I like to read poems because what we said before grief and loss and death is it's just eternal it's just what happens so it happens to all of us so i like to hear what other people have said about it i like to hear poems that were written in the 12th century about grief i like Mm. to hear about what everyone talks about because we all have to help each other and that's a lot what our show is about you know to try to help each other and thank you so much you you're such a lovely 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 person oh my gosh the loveliest person i've really ever met just so sweet <laughs> so <laughs> um should we ask our other question that we yes. always ask which is that if we were and this is going to be much more possible with you than probably any other guest we've had we like yeah. to think that we could sit with our guests and share a meal and think about what we would all bring to the meal and we can actually this is achievable we can share a meal and we will <laughs> yeah so uh yeah if we were to have a, a dinner what would we bring? Do you want to start, Bobby? No. Bobby! <laughs> Bobby and I were joking today. How's this? She gets like stage fright when we go over this and often says the same thing, which I think is adorable and honest and very funny. Oh, All right, so I'll start. Um, because we're entering spooky season and the fall, it's October 1st as we're recording this. The fall, in my opinion, is the best time of the year. Um, I'm going to bring a big hollowed out pumpkin that I roast and then hollow it out and make a delicious ros- pumpkin risotto and put it back inside the pumpkin. Ooh. So like pumpkin, yummy, creamy risotto delicious. with sage and like brown butter. Yum. Yeah. Wow. I guess what I'll bring, I don't know if it's going to fit in with anything Is it blueberry else? lemonade, Bobby? It can't be. Don't no. say that. <laughs> I was thinking about the cabbages are, are oh, this yeah. is a season for cabbage. And from our culture, my mother was from Yugoslavia. So mm-hmm. um, she used to, she taught me how to make cabbage, stuffed cabbage. Oh, really? So I would make stuffed cabbage and it was a sweet and sour 
kind of lovely taste. I think I would go lovely, yeah. really good with it. Has pumpkin some, risotto, some rice, and I would probably use turkey because I don't eat beef. But I would make a turkey rice filling, and I would make a sweet and sour cabbage sauce. Mm. Yum! Love it. Okay. Absolutely love it. I would bring again puri because I love puri, and it's like uh, we are celebrating. So yeah, right, and um, uh, chickpea. It's oh. called chole, spiced chickpea, with a side of raita, with yogurt and some cucumber in it, and some dill, maybe. Oh, I love that. So. That is, like, one of my mm. favorite combinations. You made that, too, the delicious, like, chickpea, spiced chickpeas with the with yogurt. I love that. And that sounds perfect. This is going to be a, this a meal. meal. Goes we can, we can make it. this meal. We can make this happen. <laughs> yes. And we will. Absolutely. I'm down for it. Um, uh Thank you so much. You are a wonderful human being. It was so great to have you on the show. And we really can't wait. I can't wait to see you again, which is going to be soon. I'll be home on Sunday. And so we'll have to Perfect. plan a meal and definitely plan a time where we can all hang out. And I'm, I feel so blessed that you have such a lovely neighbor and, and part of your community, part of your family. Yes, it's very nice. Thank you so much for having me here. And... It's been quite something because I wasn't ready to share my feelings or talk, even talk about it to yeah. myself. Yeah. So this was a great exercise, like unpacking everything Good. and facing it, not being in, yeah, mm. denial. Lavinia, thank, so thank you, you so, so much. much. You are so <laughs> wonderful and special. And we thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us. This is a great, great episode. Thank you so much. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Talk soon. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter 
at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.